in Mexico. First you get the marijuana. Then you get the power. Then you get the women. This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 227 for the week of November 19th, 2018. I am Seedless Version David T. Cole, and I'm here with Evidence Bud Sarah D. Bunting. So take a big whiff. Sinaloa Cowgirl Tara Ariano. Ole! And La Patrina Maggie Sorota. Happy to be here. <laughs> Welcome to Extra Hot Great for Thanksgiving week, which we are not taking off because we are very industrious and dedicated to you, our <laughs> listeners. Uh, we are here to talk about Narcos colon Mexico today. And before we start, <laughs> since there was some some controversy about this on our social media, we may talk about everything this whole season, including how it ends and the finale. And it might be riddled with spoilers. So you have been warned officially. Be aware. And joining us for this discussion is first-time guest Maggie Sirota. Hello, Maggie. Hi, Maggie. thanks for having me. Yay! Um, I have to take personal issue with anyone getting mad at a spoiler if, if the show is based <laughs> on true events. That's a great point. We were talking about Homecoming last week, which is not. Um, but yes, this is <laughs> this is <laughs> well-covered ground. We see the covers of Time magazine, literally, yeah. um, during the season. <laughs> They literally talk about what happens to Kiki Camarena in the pilot episode of this whole series. Like, the, like they talk about what happens to this guy, like, in the uh, Escobar years. Yeah, I forgot about that. So we should oh, yeah. clarify. So Narcos is the three-season uh, cartel drama on Netflix that primarily revolved around the first two seasons, the exploits of Pablo Escobar, and then season three was still in Colombia. Uh, but this is, I guess, a spinoff slash prequel. I was writing the show notes for this, and I wasn't sure how to describe it because it's kind of both, um, which moves the the action to Mexico, as the title would suggest, <laughs> and <laughs> and to um to to the early the very early eighties. So now our our protagonist is the aforementioned Kiki Camarena, played by Michael Pena, um, and he moves at the beginning of the series from the Fresno area to Guadalajara is where they are initially, right? Yes. Um, and then he proceeds to try to <laughs> to end the drug trade. Maggie, what what did you think about the, the move of setting and the new cast? Were there any standouts for you? I really like Darren Staten. I'm sad he didn't get to do more. Um, but he was a nice presence. Like that was kind of a nice character moment for him when he when he talked about like when he reacts to the horse getting shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's he's one of the squad of DEA guys in Guadalajara, yeah. also featuring Matthew Letcher, who yeah. has been in everything. He was maybe best known for the early days of Scandal. Mm-hmm. And then a fourth guy who every time I saw him on screen, I thought should be Michael Chernus, who was not. Um, <laughs> that guy, I think his name was Ron. And then uh, our lead uh, cartel guy is f- alternately Miguel or Felix. Uh, mm-hmm. Played by Diego Luna of Itumama Tambien fame, who he's he's looking real craggy, you guys. He was like a teenager in that movie, and he's he's done some hard living. I felt how 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 did you, how did he compare for you as a as an antagonist to Pablo Sarah? 
I'm not sure there's really a direct comparison. Like um, Pablo Escobar in um, Narcos Prime was so like with his, you know, <laughs> his hideous sweaters and his like yeah. normcore styles and his uh, like the way he could say Buddha, like a billion <laughs> different ways and always have it be like menacing, but also hilarious. And it it never fails that after watching a bunch of Narcos episodes in a row, like a, a cat will do something stupid. And I'm like, Buddha. And I can, I can never <laughs> quite get it. But I have been waiting for Michael Pena to have like a real breakout. Like he's been on the verge for like 15 years. Yeah. This guy. And I hope this makes him into a huge star because he's really good. And I'm always happy to see him and stuff. Um, In my notes, he is, of course, Felicity's Michael Pena because I'm that guy. <laughs> um, but I, I thought it was time to move the series. I liked the casting. Um, and But Diego Luna... Like, all of my notes are bitching about this character and his blow-dry and <laughs> his um, striving and his overreaching, but he's a really satisfying guy. Mm -hmm. Like, you're supposed to be rooting for him, but against him at the same time. And there's something about, like, whenever one of his plans goes to shit, it's, like, sad, but also satisfying. And it, one tiny note like it, just learn to smoke bro like I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry i know it's bad for you but this is really not convincing this is like brenda walsh bad <laughs> especially if you're smoking like 23 six like this character is yeah, yeah exactly yeah. um but i i mean i haven't watched the whole season yet but so far i think it's doing all the same things that uh narcos prime did well which is showing you uh, you know making both sides sympathetic but also making both sides antagonistic um the subtitling is good my spanish is not the greatest but i can tell when it's being when it's being like kind of bungled on the subtitle level and you know it's it's appears to be accurate um the this you know pacing is really good like some of the episodes like i would just click over and be like jesus christ 58 minutes like can a girl just do her job over here <laughs> but uh i you know you get sucked into it and it's very suspenseful even though as we said like spoilers are not really pertinent but the sequence early on when he's you know he manages to get himself invited onto the bus and get out to the farm um you know it's it's a breath holder i thought i thought it was good i'm i'm really enjoying it and i'm definitely going to finish the season i i i have a different take on the uh you know the the anti-hero here coming coming off the escobar season one and two and then even the cali cartel in season three this D diego luna's character felix seemed very understated not in a particularly satisfying way i thought he was sort of vulcan-y in his approach like you know his cold volcano logic oh yeah because he was so compartmentalized yeah and and i understand that as a choice speaking to the character but it doesn't necessarily translate into a compelling watch when he's on the screen I never got a sense of the menace of that character. At the end of it, I kind of felt like he failed upwards. But I just kind of thought his understated approach to the character 
kind of did a disservice to the arc of the season. I mean, I mean, like the arc of him going from lawful, lawful evil to chaotic evil or whatever he was <laughs> at the end. I didn't quite buy that progress um, when it came to Felix. It, and I think charisma had a lot to do with it. Well, certainly Rafa is more fun too. Yes. <laughs> Watch and enjoy <laughs> just like hurling cherry bombs into a pit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like and I mean, guy. there's characters that can pick up the slack. Like, obviously, Rafa was an interesting character. I mean, my favorite character in the series is Don Neto, which is... Oh, I love him. Yes, he gets all the best lines, too. Secondhand man. That guy, that actor, totally wins my most expressive face <laughs> on <Yep>. television award. <laughs> what a face. I really enjoyed when he discovered CDs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's sort of like um, a well-fed Danny Trejo face-wise. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on there, and it really, uh, he uses it. Yeah. And it, you could tell the writers were like, oh, sweet, we have one of these, and we're totally writing for him. Like his line about the number two guy doesn't solve problems, he just points them out. I was like, I'm going to stitch that on a pillow. That's good. <laughs> Are you the I'm, number two at previously? <laughs> <laughs> we're all number twos. Um, on that theory, yes, now I am. I'm not going to solve any problems, Dave. I'm just going to point them out. I agree with Dave that 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 um, Felix was less watchable than Pablo, but I also think the first series did a better job at showing how like Pablo couldn't extricate himself because like the the cartel project was part of his he had these like grand ideas about how he was going to. I mean, and he he did legitimately do, you know, charitable stuff. Was it was it okay given where the money came from and what he had to do to get it? I mean, maybe not, but like, you know, he did want to try and get into government. (laughs) I am not. Um, Whereas, like, you know, other than than the class mobility aspect of it, and I think they tried to get at that by sort of describing, like, you know, having having other characters, outsider characters like shit on Sinaloa and be like, oh, I heard they're going to pave the roads and like sort of give us an idea of like where they came from and why, you know, this was such a big deal for them to like get to the point where they could own a hotel (laughs) where they'd killed a guy that time. Um, But I think that like the, you know, the Pablo story is maybe more has, it's more gripping because of the, the grander ambitions that he had perhaps. But let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the cops a little bit too, because Mm -hmm. One thing that sort of rankles me, and I feel like it's weird for me to point this out as like a non-Latin person, is that the the local cops in Colombia and in Mexico are are presented as like uniformly corrupt, except for like every season there's one guy who hasn't been <laughs> turned, and he's like the good guy. And I feel like, I, I won't go so far as to say it's racist to portray it this way, but it's uncomfortable to watch because it can't. this can't possibly be how it actually was not to say that there wasn't rampant corruption as there is in probably all police departments, by the way, right. but Maggie, what do you, what is, are your feelings about the way law enforcement is portrayed in, in the series, this series and in the franchise? Well, this is always kind of a hard, hard show for me to watch because like the show never really grapples with like the reason all this is happening is because of all the demand in America right, for the product. And the show never really reckons with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a hard thing for me to just kind of sit back and watch it because it's like the writers aren't really owning like what's really driving this whole economy. Yeah. 
I agree with that. And and also, like, you know, it's not enough to also show, you know, whoever up the chain on the American side they have to appeal to to get whatever dispensations to do this or that or, like, all of those guys are all shitheads too. <laughs> but they're not portrayed in the same way as – they're not portrayed as being compromised. They're just, like – Mm-hmm. I don't know, lazy, I guess. Like, that seems to be, that was kind of a runner for Kiki's character through the series as well, that, like, he gets so frustrated when people, like, just have to be tricked into doing their jobs. Yeah, I also didn't get what was motivating Kiki to be so over the top. Like, maybe there yeah. was something subtle that I missed, but I didn't understand, like, why he was dodging bullets while his wife's about to drop a kid. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, why was he, like, Hunter from the show Hunter when, like... <laughs> I mean, in fairness to Kiki, his his wife did go into labor early. They did say that. Yeah. So just kidding. That's not a defense of him. It's still dumb. But it's like, why is he wandering off alone on a rogue mission when, like, he's got a kid, he's got a wife, he loves yeah. his family? Mm-hmm. I think we're also supposed to be, like, at the end of episode three when Agent Carrie Bradshaw's dad is like, well, it turns out these flyovers are bullshit, and now we're going to raise some hell. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, the white guy's on board, so now we can, like, now we can start. Yeah. And th- there are, I mean, of all of all series to tackle this, like, I, I think they do the best they can in terms of um, trying to hang a light on um, hypocritical assumptions made by American viewers about whose side you're supposed to be on, Mm -hmm. et cetera, and so on. But, you know, I, that was a little bit like, I, I love that actor. And I was like, uh, you know, all right, freckles, like, let's (laughs) sure, like get, get on board. But it's also like, eh, I mean, this series is really not, um, they don't do that whole, like, you know, Caucasian hero is is saving the day thing but it's I think they also as you said Maggie they don't they don't grapple with the fact that the demand for both the product and enforcement of like arrests around the product are both American mm-hmm. and you know the US comes down and sort of tells them their business and I like I am a true crime person but this whole systemology is like way above my pay grade in terms of my true crime consumption but like the fact is if you're if you're gonna sort of write off um all of the local law enforcement as corrupt i think you also have to acknowledge that the other choice is literally death it's yeah or death and Mm -hmm. sometimes even when you choose to be corrupt you still get killed. Like, I, I think it's just a different level of um, stakes yeah. that the show doesn't always um, dig into, which it's, it's not afraid to dig into a lot of things or to be gory. So <laughs> tell that guy to the, cut the uh, airplane propeller in that one scene. Sure. <laughs> um, oh my God. Oh, something to look forward to. Neat. <laughs> one th- interesting thing about this season of Narcos is it sort of uh, doesn't follow the rule of sequels, which is bigger, crazier, and all that. You know, it doesn't have Catwoman and the Penguin in in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like it's season two. It almost feels like Mexico should have been the first season. Yeah, 
I mean, I guess Pablo is the like the more known quantity, so yeah. And Colombia should have been the second season because the stakes are lower. The machinations are a subset of what was going on in Colombia. Colombian drug trade is the prime mover and everything that happens in this season, you know, as the season progresses, they go from being a marijuana consortium to being a, a delivery service through Mexico for Colombian Coke. And that sort of drives, you know, the growth of the empire and all the crazy shit that happens, uh, you know, to Felix at all. But it never feels bigger or substantially different from Colombia in that way. And I felt like, although I enjoyed the ride at the end of the season, I didn't feel like I'd seen anything particularly new. I think it's like, I mean, I think the story is always going to be the same no matter who's on top. It's like there's going to be a rise and there's... Yeah, And then it gets too big. And then the hungrier, you know, the hungrier businessmen come up, you know, now that it's right. the, the guy on top's losing control. Peace on their flesh. The, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's behind the music. But yeah, but what if what if they took attack like The Wire, where mm-hmm. instead of focusing on the criminal kingpins, they looked at this part of the drug trade and what it was doing, you know, and then kind of had a different focus for each season while still keeping all the departments in in the story right you know so the wire went from dealing with the detectives and the drug dealers to dealing with uh you know sort of logistic operators in it to dealing with the politics and and all that but everybody was still in the game or it's the story of the place so this season would be sinaloa and then next season would be i mean right now every season is about drug enforcement agency versus the drug lords but what if season two it was more about the local police? If that was the focus while still bringing in everything else, that might be a little bit different. I think that might help solve some of the sameness of this. I mean, because Maggie's right. I mean, no matter the location, the high notes of the story are the same. Drug dealers sell drugs. Everybody else helps. Right. It's it's behind right. the music writ large. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> everything's a Motley Crue video up until a certain point. <laughs> Also, I thought this season was a little less processy. We were dealing with a marijuana grow this time instead of, um, you know, coca farms and all that from the first one. But I thought there would be some new stuff. And I felt like they kind of did a shorthand speed up through getting because like it was like, well, we're in this desert and we're trying to figure out how to get the water. And now we have 10,000 million acres of weed. Yay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they kind of fast forwarded to Felix's ascension and, you know, maybe... It would have been more interesting if they could have slow played the start of it a little bit. I I agree. The, the show is still good. I'll still continue to watch it at, going forward. But I, I do. I wish it was more. I feel like they're they're obviously they are trying to make you empathize with the cartel guys. But I feel like there's still I feel like there's still too much of the cops. Like I wish there were a season. I wish we knew that the next season was going to be like by. Mexican and South American writers <laughs> like to tell us yeah. that pers- that lived perspective because for right. the reason that Sarah said like we're that's that's what we're not getting. But Tara, you know, if if you want to focus on a compelling, you know, anti-hero, you know, and if you 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 kind of want to see his journey, like in mm. 2018, if you're going to have a Walter Blanco in your show, then yeah. you need right. to like uh-huh. you really have to step up your game or you have to like yeah, diversify yeah you know, what you're doing with the show. And I think they went the other way, but boy, that that's a challenge to get that Diego Luna character to be, to yeah. carry the whole thing, you know, that right. type of character. 
I will yeah. give Diego Luna that he has very sad eyes, and I sure felt does. like they did a, they did a lot. Like, like I kind of yeah. got why he was so compromised because even they were kind of light on why, or not compromised. He was so like compartmentalized and so like such a control freak. It's like, like they kind of undersold his backstory a little bit, but I feel mm-hmm. like he made up for that with just like how sad his face, his eyes are. And if you look at the actual Aguiardo, the actual guy, I'm like, oh, he really has those sad eyes. Like, it was really good casting. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> well, something that really bothered me was, like, the show also sidestepped that there's, like, while you're fighting this drug war down south, like, another branch of government is bringing drugs into the country. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, t- they were a little cute about that. Yeah, which is, like, so beyond fucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this about next season. One thing I know about when Scoot McNary goes to Mexico is he's going to run into some monsters. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. We've all seen it's that It's a prequel movie. to Monsters. Yeah, you're right. It's a prequel to the movie Monsters. <laughs> all right. It is time to go around the dial. Everybody talking about something they're watching these days. First up, Tara. Uh, I watched all three parts of Shut Up and Dribble, and I know what you're thinking, but Tara, you hate sports, true, but I do love to learn, and this is a documentary, um, and I also like to judge people, which there was plenty of opportunity to do that, so Shut Up and Dribble is um, produced by LeBron James and I believe Jay-Z, uh, it's a Showtime three-part documentary, which Jamel, is that how you say her name, Jamel Hill? Mm-hmm. I might, she, yeah. Okay, she okay, she good. wrote the narration, and she she does does the narration throughout, so it's like a sort of starts from the perspective of I mean the the jumping off point is as the title suggests a an editorial that a, an extremely hateful Laura Ingram made on her terrible show where she told LeBron James to stay out of politics and just shut up and dribble and so this is like a you know a historical look at um social activism in the NBA from the very start and why that's important. And and some of this I knew a little bit because I also watched the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, documentary on HBO a couple years ago, which is also great. Um, and O.J. Made in America. Veronica writer Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Veronica Mars writer, Dancing with the Stars star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, I forgot he was also on that dive show until it came up recently again, but he was on, he did that too. Anyway. Um, airplane hero yes yes all of those um so he it, it uh they touch on this a little too in oj made in america which is you know talking about the history of of activism from black athletes in america and why that's important and sort of that's that's kind of the the that's the thread that runs through the whole thing it's like how if you're in this incredibly rare position of being an NBA star and having this kind of privilege, how do you use that um, on behalf of your community? And it's so great. I mean, the, the sports, the sports scenes are also good. I, it's true. I don't care about sports, but if I had to watch a sport, I would probably watch basketball. I enjoy how fast it is. Um, And um, you know, it, it goes through like the bird magic years and, you know, how Michael Jordan was like a different kind of athlete and that he did not use the, his position to help anyone except himself to get rich. Um, and the dream team and like, you know, Allen Iverson and all of the racial aspects of how he was covered and stuff. But the the best episode is the third one because it, it covers um, the rise of LeBron James, who I didn't realize he was recruited straight out of high school because, as I said, I, didn't, I don't know anything about sports. But he... Um, 
he is like definitely on the right side of every issue. And they obviously talk about him moving from Cleveland to Miami and like the show that he did and they got him and, you know, obviously he interviewed because it was his production. He was like, yeah, that was, (laughs) that show was a bad idea, but it had already started and it was, you know, it was happening and I couldn't stop it. And, and, you know, getting to the point where he goes back to Cleveland and I just like, I, I find it so moving his love for Cleveland and Cleveland's love for him. I mean, obviously they turned on him when he left, but I've lived in like 10 cities in my life and I don't care about any of them the way that he cares about Cleveland. Like, you know, they don't even get to him starting a school. Um, so LeBron James is a great man. This is a great documentary. Um, listen to basketball players. They have good ideas and they're on the right side of all this. And um, not yeah, Dennis Rodman, though. Not him. <laughs> yeah, guess who does not get featured very much? <laughs> I think you get a couple of like B-roll shots of him, but yeah, it's uh, it's generally pretty positive. Um, yeah, I learned a lot. Also, could have been an alternate title for the Cool Kids. It would have worked there too. So, <laughs> great point, Dave. Thank, thank you. you. Um, so, all three parts are um, up on Show Showtime's app. So, if you missed it, they're all under an hour, and I very highly recommend it, even if you don't care about sports like me. For my plug, I will mention again with this, because we are also not taking the week off for Thanksgiving, and we have some real corkers of episodes coming up, including one with a real housewife. I will not spoil who, but I gasped when I saw her. So, uh, yeah, check those out. All right, Maggie, uh, it's your turn. Okay, so I was flipping channels last night, and the Clinton affair is on um, A&E. So I stopped and watched that for a little bit. And it was the first time I ever had heard the recordings that Linda Tripp had made of Monica Lewinsky. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to start with this documentary because, like, as far left-wing as I am, I can also say that Bill Clinton's a bad man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's something that nagged at me, like, through the, you know, like, through the election. It's like, well, now I honestly have no problem believing that guy raped people. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Allegedly, um, for legal purposes. Allegedly, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and I just like looking back, I you just got a view of how vicious that culture was at the time. Like I was in high school, and I really didn't wasn't sophisticated enough to know that like how horrific Monica Lewinsky was treated. Um, yeah. They showed some clips in the documentary of like Jay Le- a Jay Leno sketch where they were making fun of Paula Jones. And they just had, they uglied up this woman in, like, a huge nose and gave her big hair and set her in, like, a like a trailer park. And it was just, like, this horrifically misogynist, like, classist sketch on, on like, The Tonight Show that people were just Ugh. laughing at. And Jay Leno is just, like, chuckling through. And it just, oh. I mean, and we all, a- we all did. And my skin yeah. crawls, like, listening to, um, listening to the Slate podcast. Um, and just the how they sort of repeatedly go back to how shitty we all were to all of these yeah. women, not not really the men, the women. Not Linda Tripp. She can go fuck herself, but the well, rest. Yeah, of them. she totally can. I called her a warthog several times in print, and I don't regret that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, there's also a segment of the documentary where you hear Linda Tripp talking to the um to the book agent where she gets monica oh. to confide in her and then her last name is goldberg and i can't remember her first name lucianne lucianne yeah. thank you and they're talking about like oh well, i'm interested in the story now tell me more and like 
when they're talking about how to approach it, they never once stop and really reckon with the fact that they're like they're about to ruin someone's life. <laughs> no regard for like what's going to happen to Monica, because I just don't know if I could have gone through the way she. I mean, I've I think luckily she had family money because I know she was like unemployable for a long time. Mm-hmm. But like I don't with the resources I have, I couldn't have. That's a road I probably couldn't have hoed. Yeah, it's amazing. And and amazing how my opinion about that whole thing has changed, too, that, like, at the time yeah. I was like, well, she's an adult woman. She knows what she was doing. That's not sexual harassment if you consent. Like, yeah. it's so dumb. I'll say. Yeah, no, it's, I like, I wish I could, like, hug her for every, like, bad thought I had about her I back know. in the day. Like, I am so, Monica, are you listening? I am <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Me too. Monica, come on the pod. What was that TV show she had for a hot minute? Mr. Personality. Thank you. And it was a dating show on Fox where she was the host, and the premise was all of the. It was like The Bachelor, but the guys are all in, or The Bachelorette, but the guys are all in masks. Got it. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Like, I mean, we've all made bad decisions. Like, for the rest of your life, you are now, like, I think a Jezebel writer once put it, like, for the rest of your life, you're now judged by the worst person you blew. Yeah. Ugh. God. <laughs> Oh, God. So the show is good, you're saying? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's just kind of good, but it's also like watching a slasher movie or like a torture porn movie because it's it's looking back at a time when we were all horrible. Yeah. And no one felt a need to not be horrible. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> felt completely entitled to be horrible. And yeah, it's just so brutally humiliating and upsetting to watch them. Well, that's on A&E, so check that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you want to plug? We'll plug your, uh, we'll link your Twitter in the show notes as well. Okay, but cool. What so, else would you um, like to plug? I am a staff writer at Spin, so you can read Ooh. me every day at spin.com. Um, and a couple months ago, I published a deep dive into my favorite movie, um, So I Married an Axe Murderer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, nice. we'll link that too. So, um, yeah, if you want to check that out, I wouldn't hate it. All right. I swear this is the last time I'm going to talk about this for a while, but after Mark Lazanti pumped up Patriot again, me and Tara decided <laughs> that this was a weekend we were going to watch the whole thing and watch the whole thing. We did two seasons, 18 episodes, I believe, right? Yep. 18 episodes. Uh, the reports are true. This is a really good, smart show. And as everyone who talked about it before, Mark, Jeff, and I forget which one of the ATX ladies was talking about it, they all sort of had difficulty describing the show to other people and i get why i mean the best i can do is it's like a coen brother movie that's on zoloff except <laughs> when it, it's getting an adrenaline shot straight to the heart you know it's like part spy show but it's also a cop show it's a little bit of like hbo's barry in yeah. its dna but it's also like like if you took that description at face value it sounds like a kind of a depressing very gray show and at times it is dour but it's also very winning at the same time like even when it goes dark and i think a lot of that has to do with the lead um michael dorman who mm -hmm. plays john and he does an immense amount of emoting within a very narrow range of emotion you know like he's he's a sad man he's got you know post-traumatic stress he is depressed but he's also a you know, spy par excellence. And this cast around him really elevates, you know, his his role. We got Michael Chernis, who Tara, Tara mentioned a little while ago. He's from Manhattan too, right? Yeah, and Orange is the New Black, he plays Piper's brother on that. 
Right. And so he's a great counterbalance to the, the character of John. He plays his brother. He's a junior congressman. He loves the Beastie Boys. He's always wearing like track. Wearing tra- he wears a lot of track suits. <laughs> and, but I want to say a special shout out to Chris Conrad as Dennis. He is the creator's brother, right? Tara, you're yep. saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this guy is, he works at the cover workplace that John the Spy uh, sort of gains entrance to in order to be able to fly to Luxembourg to do spy stuff. And he is like this needy, adventure-seeking, self-proclaimed best friend of John. And this guy takes what have been a really annoying character and turns it into something oddly endearing, even though if you put all his deeds and what he says on paper, he comes off as like a real jackass and dick. But there's something about this guy, the way he approaches the character. It's not quite a man idiot, but it's close, but it doesn't cross <laughs> that line. That is just like such a well thought out and considered approach to this character. And I think that speaks to the show itself. Like it's it's really well thought out. It's sort of it's one of those shows that's like kneading bread. It kind of like advances a bit and takes two steps back and kind of goes like that in, in, in cycles. And it's very satisfying to sort of have these storylines play out. Uh, sort of like, you know, an 80% per episode chunks. And then you get a little backstory on the episode before you get a little backstory on six months before, before the characters are really in the shit with the current storyline. Very satisfying. And Mark Lizandi was right that the third episode of the second season was a real tour de force. Some really marquee things happen. Um, and I won't give anything away because if you're going to watch it, it is really a fun surprise. Um, Tara, you watched it with me. Thoughts? Yeah, I will say rewatching the pilot because we had tried it once and yep. then we watched the pilot and we're like, mm, just maybe not in the not. mood for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and watching it again, I was like, oh, OK, yeah, I remember what aspects of this turned me off. I will give it more of a shot this time. And it it is a slow burn. I know in this day and age, you, you can't really tell people like, no, you have to watch nine. And then it really kicks in. <laughs> it doesn't take that long. But it but you do. There is a lot of like really piloty cutesiness in the pilot and i feel like amazon pilots are especially guilty of this because they have that whole thing where they'll just they'll just do one and then have you vote on them and i think that that i don't think they do that anymore maybe not but i think they did it this time okay and so i i I, maybe not i might be wrong but i but i there was there's it's so much world establishment that it's like too much it's like it's like it's like eating a whole pixie stick like it's just and and the show is much more thoughtful and much more of a slow burn and like things are set up and then they pay off way later or like in reverse or in the past like you see how they got to this point and i'll also say um two of the older characters terry quinn plays uh john's dad and handler and Kurtwood Smith plays his boss at the cover company, and they are both great in their very different bald ways. But late in the first, in the first season, um, the two of them have a scene together on a boat on a hunting trip that is like one of my favorite things in the whole series. Like just seeing the two of them in a scene together is great because they're both amazing. Obviously, we all know, but um, yeah, it's a really well cast show. Um, it's it's uh yeah it's it's as good as everyone has been saying so thank you to everyone who was hammering us over the head about it it was uh, a very satisfying way to spend a weekend and you dave mentioned barry i'll also say it has um some things in common with kidding as well which we talked about a couple of months ago with alan when it premiered um similar like 
dad manipulation of a troubled son stuff um that i think and and similar you know uh not elastic reality but like a very dark deadpan sensibility in both of those so if you liked one you'll probably like the other i would say and just quickly follow up on the teen titan stuff last week i asked people to send me their suggestions based on the very funny first episode that i watched on the uh, force sending tip and uh, i haven't got into watching anymore yet but i just want to say thank you because i had like an overwhelming response i had like like a dozen emails on with lists and uh, suggestions and the one of the common suggestions was to watch the movie that just came out so i think that might be the next stop uh teen titans go to the movies i believe that is yeah. so mm -hmm. uh that might be the next stop so thank you very much for emailing me at some point in the future um, i'll probably circle back and tell you about the uh the movie AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart-stopping thrillers, and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as $4.99 a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. But the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet, and I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad, so... Let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film, and you can join me free for 30 days. Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E-N-O-W.com and use promo code EHG for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now! it's time for extra credit tara what do we got this week this comes from dan casino oh dan casino uh i should have something for that but i don't <laughs> casino noise hey you found it dan casino writes who is the most underappreciated staff member of an appreciated show and as examples he suggests the wig wrangler on The Americans, the set director recreating soul-crushing conformity on The Office, the coat buyer for Fargo. Give them the props they deserve. I have two. Um, one, since we're coming straight off Patriot, is I will say the title card designer for Kidding and Patriot. Both of those um, do unique title cards for the episodes every time. And um, with Kidding, it's usually like a stop-motion sort of crafty thing, which is like fascinating to watch and very beautiful. And Patriot's all looked really different, but I feel like in season two, Dave, would you agree they really stepped it up? They are very, um, if you know the site, dribble with three Bs are very dribble worthy. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's not something that you realize until later and then you'll go, oh, that's yeah. what that title card meant. But they're very pretty to look at. Um, and my other is 
the sex choreographer on Sally Forever because wow. <laughs> that scene in the first episode, which I mentioned in our last podcast, was beyond. Maggie. Um, I would like to give props to the st- whoever styled Lee Russell on Vice Principals. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I I mean, maybe, I mean, the patterns they put that guy in together were just, wow. I didn't know they worked, but they worked. <laughs> That's the Walton Goggins character? Yes. They, they really it. just constructed an incredible Southern dandy out of him. <laughs> Amazing. Sarah? Um, I'm going back in time a little bit uh, to The Sopranos and the um, food wrangler, stylist, slash crafty, particularly whoever came up with that tripe casserole that Richie gives Carmela in season two. But I mean, all the pasta looks amazing, even when it's not supposed to be that great. Like that scene where they're eating steak and eggs after they kill that guy they killed. (laughs) You know, that guy. (laughs) Sure. Um, Just everything always looks delicious and is lit in a way that is possibly only familiar to me, but also very appealing. So that's fine. I'll close this out. We've been doing a 30 Rock uh, rewatch here, uh, as mentioned last week's canon. And I have to give a shout out to the musical director of 30 Rock, Jeff Richmond, who is Tina Fey's husband. I wonder how he got that job. But even though <laughs> uh, nepotism was involved, he really proves himself. I was watching a uh, interview where they were talking about the Milton Green Kidney song, which is their like, we are the world send up and what went into building that. So apparently within like the course of, three days they got some of the beats of the lyrics from the writers he had to like pull and reform all this into a song and then they had to like logistically shoot 25 musicians all in one day and build up this this whole scene he's sort of responsible for getting notes from the writer's room turning them into actual songs the cleveland song werewolf bar mitzvah (laughs) tennis night Make a pizza, Mr. Templeton, which is like one of my favorite stupid things in the yes. show. And it goes on and on, Muffin Top and all that. But also, like, just the incidental music he does, I feel like is like an unsung hero of 30 Rock. It is so personalized, but it's not corny and goofy. It never, it sort of comfortably sits behind the script and the acting of 30 Rock. And, and the same with Kimmy Schmidt, which he also does. Like, it never overpowers. It always augments instead of, you know, uh, overpowers the, um, it's not the banana in the smoothie, which uh, I think, <laughs> you know, you can often do. So my pick, uh, Jeff Richman from 30 Rock. It's time for the canon. Tara's doing the canon submission this week. Take away, Tara. Okay. We're here to talk about season five, episode three of the Larry Sanders show titled, Where is the Love? And this starts out like many other episodes with the titular Larry in his show within a show delivering a perfectly average monologue of the sort we as viewers are accustomed to hearing. And then it turns out that the plot line of this episode is going to revolve around the subject of exactly how perfectly perfectly average that monologue is. Larry Sanders show gets reviewed by real life Washington Post TV critic Tom Shales. He doesn't care for what he sees. Larry can't let it go. And here are the reasons that I think this episode is canon worthy. Number one, it rests on a simple premise that comically progresses because of what we know about the characters. So the viewer first finds out about the bad review by seeing Larry's staffers reacting to it and bracing for Larry's inevitable freakout as soon as he finds out about it. Remember, this is 1996. Larry could absolutely get through a whole morning in Los Angeles without necessarily finding out what may have been written about him in a media outlet based in D.C. It's not like anyone's going to tweet him a link. 
The article might not have even made it to the Post's website. And Larry probably doesn't use email. But anyway, here's how it begins. Clip one. As a child, Larry must have been cruelly starved for love by mom and dad. You can see the neediness on his face from the moment Larry begins what he calls a monologue, but what I call a desperate cry for love. Jesus, Tom Shales hates Larry. Man, oh man. This is great. Larry's gonna come in here, he's gonna be in a shit mood, and he's gonna throw out all my monologue jokes. No, Ma, this is worse than the time he said Larry's face was puffy. Beverly, tell your mother goodbye. <laughs> I didn't clip this part, but we Artie also gets on the phone and talks to her, and I love the detail that he calls her Nancy. Like, of course, Artie knows Beverly's mother's first name because he's Artie. And yeah. because, because Artie is Artie, he has a strategy already and announces it in advance of Larry's arrival in clip two. I'm sure you all want to show Larry your concern and support. Concern and support makes Larry think something's wrong, so let's just act like nothing's happened. Mm. Phil? Yes, sir. Those are the last two words I want to hear out of your mouth. Morning. Good morning, Master Sander. Hey, great show last night, Larry. Oh, Wait. thanks, thanks, thanks. Hey, I just thought of this. I was uh, a swimsuit model in the I Can't Believe It's a Guy catalog. <laughs> Is that funny? <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, great. <laughs> what did I just tell you? Because Artie knows everything, his prediction comes true. Larry is suspicious of the staff's warmth, forcing Artie to admit that there's been a bad review. Naturally, Artie's attempt to put it in perspective by reminding Larry about his millions of fans doesn't work, and Larry's novel perspective on his current predicament is that his fame disadvantages him against his critic, Clip 3. Just because I'm famous, I gotta take this kind of crap, and then I can't do anything. At least if I was a regular guy, I walked into a bar and some guy says you're puffy and there's neediness written all over your face, I can take him outside. And do what? And I am speaking hypothetically. <laughs> if Larry can appreciate the irony that being so obsessed by one bad review kind of proves Tom Shale's point about his neediness, we get no evidence of that. Moving on. Number two, this episode lets Larry's narcissism run wild. Viewers of HBO's Larry Sanders Show know that guests on Unnamed Network's Larry Sanders Show pass through Larry's life to be of use to him briefly. Those who have the bad luck of being booked during his anguish over Tom Shales learn that the way they will be of use to Larry this particular week will be to get dragged into his bullshit. Sting has to field a harried request from Larry not to play King of Pain lest it be misinterpreted as a meta comment on Larry himself. Sting and his big dick energy have no empathy for Larry's sweaty desperation in clip four. Larry, you, you asked for King of Pain. Who's that about? King of Pain? Yeah. Well, I thought it was about me, but maybe it's about you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See you out there, huh? Sure. <laughs> So Larry's lead guest, Sally Field, must endure much worse, though. While Jake Johansson is performing, she asks Larry whether she did okay. He assures her that she did, and she credits him with being so funny that he relaxed her. He worries that he was off tonight, and she tells him she doesn't think he was. Clip five. Isn't it odd how we still need to hear approval oh, after yeah. we do? Oh, always. Are you kidding? I mean, I'll go home tonight and wake up my nine-year-old son and ask him what he thought. I rely on his opinion. He's smart. Tom Shales is such a jerk. Who? Tom Shales is a television critic. I don't do television anymore. <laughs> That's such a time capsule, too. I don't do television anymore. Pre-Brothers and Sisters and Maniac. Anyway, Larry continues haranguing her backstage, recapping the bad review for her and forcing her into doing the emotional labor of telling him none of it is true, which she doesn't. Her spin is that he has the courage to go on stage in front of millions of people and be needy. 
Apparently, it's what he needs to hear because he makes out with her and then asks her out. Using the show as his dating service is classic Larry. We may be somewhat relieved that he's not so far gone about the Shales Review to pass up a chance to hit on a famous female guest. Number three, it nods to the intimacy of late night shows. It's hard to remember this now at a time when most viewers experience late night network talk shows, if they experience them at all in the form of segment clips on YouTube. But in the pre-DVR era, even a casual viewer might choose a favorite host and, if one happened to have the TV on post-primetime, turn to him, only him's being available then as now. Devoted late-night fans would watch that chosen guy every weeknight, and for that viewer, a host would have running bits that would span multiple episodes, like Letterman's Oprah log, in which she tracked how long it had been since he'd invited her on the show, receiving no response. Sometimes they would arise more organically in the way Letterman mocked John McCain during his 2008 presidential campaign for canceling a planned appearance due to the financial crisis only to waste time in a CBS News studio instead. Larry's response to the Shales Review is to turn his extremely real pain about it into a fairly lame comedy bit, hanging around his neck a sign identifying himself as a needy talk show host and shaking a tin cup. That gives Shales a new thing to slam, giving Larry more material. The cycle continues, and thus are the late-night hours filled over days and weeks. Larry's joke isn't especially inspired, but when there are fewer options on TV, a so-so gag could be made to work through sheer repetition, one of the many ways the Larry Sanders show showed it really got how late-night TV worked. For Shales, this all pays off when he runs into Larry at a restaurant. This might not be as chancy as it seems. We know this particular location is the one restaurant Larry takes all his dates to, and maybe Shales just had one of the Post's L.A.-based entertainment reporters point him to the place he'd be most likely to cross Larry's path. Anyway, here's how that goes. Clip six. Uh, Hi, Tom. Well, hi, Larry. How you doing? Just fine. Listen, I just want you to know something, Tom. I I don't have problems taking criticism. I think you know that about me. But I think when you attack uh, my personal... uh, life and stuff about me being needy and not getting enough love for my parents i don't think that's right i think that's over the line how come you never have me on your show larry you've had other critics who had uh, gene siskel that yeah. big fat roger ebert gene shallot rex reed yeah. never me i'm not sure why tom shales who was not just a real critic but even at this time a pulitzer prize winning critic would play himself as such a star fucker, but the reveal that he's also needy immediately diffuses Larry's anger. It also adds another realistic layer to the episode's portrayal of who does what in the ecosystem that is late night TV. Finally, and most importantly, number four, it gives an HBO gloss to a classic sitcom situation. Let's back up a little in the plot before Larry and Shales meet at the restaurant. Larry is still seething the day after his tin cup bit, so he writes Shales a letter, clip seven. You want me to send this to Tom Shales? Yes. Dear dumb fuck. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So Beverly, of course, refuses to fax the letter, so Larry declares that he'll just do it himself. Confident that he won't be able to figure out how, Beverly leaves him to it. But what do you know? Larry can figure out the fax machine. Ish. Clip eight. Dear dumb fuck. Who are you to sit on your fucking ass while I'm out there working my ass off trying to entertain America, you boring, yellow-bellied, talentless dickhead? (laughs) You just sit there watching me, hoping the world doesn't find out what a fucking fraud you are. Sincerely, Larry, suck my cock, Sanders. (laughs) 
So Hank assumes he is the letter's intended recipient. And honestly, based on his relationship with Larry over the years, it's not that crazy for him to think so. He responds in kind in clip nine. Dear Larry, Tom Shales is my favorite writer. Sincerely, Hank, blow me Kingsley. <laughs> it's got to be a hoax from Phil. Well, there's nothing funny about it. Another indication is Phil. <laughs> Beverly, <laughs> after Artie, the second most omniscient person in the office, knows it's Hank's writing, so Artie goes to Hank to tell him about the mix-up. So when Larry stammers out an apology for the facts to Shales at the restaurant, only to hear Shales never got it, he's relieved. And he, Artie, and Hank can all laugh about it the next day. Clip 10. I got Tom Shales' facts by mistake. Yeah, yeah he told me. I'm really sorry. It's, it's actually, it's, it's good because I found out the, how much pain you were in. So um, I forwarded your facts to that asshole this morning. Let me see if I have this right. You sent Tom Shales the fax that starts out, Dear Dumb Fuck. Yes, I did. You dumb fuck. So, if not for the setting and the profanity, this storyline could be a threes company. It's a perfectly executed plot line and one the show knows well enough to end before we have to see the consequences that we can easily imagine based on what these characters have shown us over the previous 20 minutes. The Larry Sanders Show is one of TV's greatest series set behind the scenes in the world of entertainment, and this episode is a perfect encapsulation of why. It feels at once real and absurd, and despite being a premium cable series when there hardly were any, it's not so pretentious that it can't make us scream with horrified laughter at a misunderstanding plotline revolving around a letter addressed to dear dumb fuck. Whereas the love gives us the Larry Sanders Show at its needy, neurotic best, and I hope you will induct it into the canon. Thank you, Tara. Uh, Maggie, you're our guest. Why don't you uh, give your thoughts first? Oh, man, where do I start? Um, I think some of my favorite interactions of this episode were between um, Larry and Hank. Mm -hmm. And just like the hostility with which um, Larry just vomited onto Hank. Because I guess that when Larry's more insecure, he has this very kind of shifting comfort with how everyone around him just kind of tells him what he wants to hear and kisses his ass <laughs> and <laughs> and when he's deep into that like self-loathing place that I all, a lot of comedians dwell like he really just like kind of vomits like bile onto Hank and it's incredible yeah I also didn't clip the part where um they're reading the review H uh Hank's assistant is reading it to Brian is reading it to him and <laughs> Hank's just nodding sagely like mm -hmm, mm, terrible Read it again. <laughs> <laughs> that and um, like there's that part where like there's a little addendum to a joke where like someone like I guess um, Artie asked Larry why he broke a cup and he just goes, oh, it was Hank's. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love the idea that no one respects Hank. <laughs> <laughs> and Hank is fine with that because he gets to be on TV. So that's like at all um, I really liked this episode. As you know, one of my um, canon criteria is whether I like want to go and watch the next one of whatever the show is, which I did. Um, I feel like I, I haven't watched much, if you know, hardly any Larry Sanders, but I did watch that two part Gary Shandling documentary. And uh, that made me feel like I knew the show more than I actually do. So I do think this is really typical um, of the show. It was hilarious. Uh, 
it was really interesting to watch this having just um done like going back to back with a 30 rock and then like earlier this month we talked about um the Seinfeld episode and there's like a JFK Jr joke and it was just mm-hmm. funny to um to have that like these little callbacks within the canon um in a in an episode that's a meta commentary about critics comedians self-loathing i you know tom shales clearly i think he loved the show and was um quoted pretty extensively in the documentary which um Again, I really enjoyed. I think I talked about it in Around the Dial, and you guys should watch it if you haven't already. And props to him for playing a needy version of himself on the yeah, show. Sure. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Um, and Sting just, like, snickering at him. <laughs> and there's, like, sort of a runner about that. He's like, can he play a different song? And then when you realize that it's been Sting playing King of Pain, and he's like, you asked for that. Like, what a perfectly Sanders, Larry Sanders thing, but also what a perfectly Gary Shandling thing. Um, and to have Sally Field come in as like an even like a meta on the meta commentary uh, on neediness after the like she's sort of referring to the you really like me speech, mm-hmm. but then she doesn't actually say the words and you have to fill in the gaps. Um, yeah. I just thought it was really I mean, it was just wonder- like Penny Johnson. Gerald is a treasure and should work all the time. Yeah. And uh, even like, you know, you start right in like there's. Jeffrey Tamper and you're like oh no like am I yeah how much am I gonna have to struggle with this and like a little but first of all the show humiliates him on a regular basis (laughs) even intra and episode so that was fine and he he plays a bad person (laughs) yeah and he's and he's also flawless as that announcer like the the way that he echoes the real that like Don Pardo or someone like that like he's really good but then the character is really bad so you can sort of enjoy um the character with less um guilt because he's a shithead um yeah this was really fun to watch and i'm like this is on my you know one of these days i'll watch the whole series list and i just bumped it up after this canon presentation well done tara hey (laughs) i honestly think this is the best show about show business it's really good. We recent we just did a full rewatch like within the past couple of months, and that was when it gave me the idea to do this particular episode. But yeah, it's it's a great show. It definitely is. And I have a couple just random comments on things that happened in the episode before I get into why I really like this. Uh, okay, so fax machines. You know, Larry has this problem where he like gets the you know his page into the fax machine, and then like everything goes bad for him. He sends it to the wrong number. Fax machines, when they started and then sort of when they ended, they never improved like the interface or how you sent stuff (laughs) or anything like sending a fax right the first time is impossible. It's either you sent it the, the wrong way. became obsolete before anyone ever figured out how to. Yeah, before Apple things. can get their hands on, you know, iFax. Like, it just, like, <laughs> totally. nobody could figure out how to make it user-friendly. And it never was. Loud and cumbersome right to the end. <laughs> yeah. And then they, they try to improve it by, now you can put a fax card in your Pentium, you know, 386 and send them right for your computer. It's like, nope, it's even more complicated now. <laughs> I have all the sympathy in the world for anybody who had to use a fax machine. Tara didn't mention him at all, but one of the bits on the show is Jake Johansson is the stand-up act on Larry Sanders. Oh, like yeah. this guy was going to be the next big thing, right? Everybody thought at the time, yeah, mm-hmm. like kind of like mm-hmm. Seinfeld-ish big, and he just kind of never hit. Um, 
but we need to talk about the tie he was wearing. That is all of 1990s. From the Brandon Walsh collection. Uh-huh. <laughs> or the Jim Walsh collection, really. <laughs> it really <laughs> was. It totally was from the Jim Walsh collection. Minus saw the chest hair. <laughs> like, it looked like he was the, he was the maitre d' at a family-friendly, family-priced Italian restaurant in your neighborhood. The needy talk show joke within the show was so incredibly bad. I'm not quite sure like how much that was workshopped to be bad and how much of it just was bad. No, I think it was like intended to be bad. I feel like, I'm sorry to be interrupt you, but I feel like with the show, it's like they were aware that like this is kind of a stale period of the talk show era. Like the Mm -hmm. kind of format is just so stale and I think it really was by that time. Yeah. And I think they're because if you look at all the sketches, the, all the sketches were horrible. Yeah, and it's like yep. I could not have known that all, that all the sketches were just terrible. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's an episode with Carol Burnett where they're trying to write, you know, a Carol Burnett esque sketch, and the Larry Sanders crew just like can't do it. She gets fed up. He gets fed up, and you know it's just a disaster. And yeah, no, I think you're right. And uh, but it's just like. Okay, yes, obviously, that was a good piece. They did know what they were doing. They intentionally wrote a terrible joke. But it's so terrible that it kind of comes back around again that I'm doubting it. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a perfect bit of terribleness. To me, it's the kind of thing where it's like he wanted to do it. No one wanted to write it for him because it was such a bad idea. And he did it anyway. And so this is his version of, like, the defiant, terrible gag that, you know, this is the best version of it that he personally could do, which is even worse than a bad version. Yeah. And then you have the whole misunderstanding, you know, the Three's Company-esque misunderstanding about the facts. We've seen that on sitcoms a million different ways with a million different scenarios. But like what makes this different is this is the HBO version, right? Where uh, everything is dialed to 11. You know, it is a dumb fucks. It is not just, you know, you mean guy. Um, So that really elevates what is, you know, a TV trope. But at the heart of it, it's just like, a show about insecurity and Larry Sanders lays it out for the whole world to see. And it's like a fascinating train wreck of an episode to showcase that. Usually for a Larry Sanders show, if it's already light, I tend not to like it. But this is such a perfect Larry Sanders showcase, like the character just being insecure, childish, pouty, and spoiled all while being an extremely funny 30 minutes. It's not easy to, it's sort of like uh, Stan Lee passed away. Everybody knows he tried to write Tony Stark as a real shithead and tried to make people like him. Like, I feel like Larry Sanders is sort of like that, you know, like you just have this (laughs) terrible guy and you try to make a quality product around a character that everybody should hate all the time. And, And, you know, it's a funny episode and it's a great show. So well done, you know, Larry Sanders. Also, he hooks another hallmark of a Larry Sanders show is Larry hooking up with a woman that <laughs> yep. should be out of his league. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and taking her to Field. that one restaurant. Yeah. 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 Stage ah. stage 62 bistro. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So with that, let's put this to the official vote. Uh, Maggie, what vote you? C- Canon worthy? Yay or nay? Yay. Sarah Bunting. It's a yay for me. And uh, you know what? I'm going to go yay too. So... Larry Sanders Show, Season 5, Episode 3, Where is the Love? You are hereby inducted into the Extra Hot Great Can. Americans love a winner. Yeah. 
and will not tolerate a loser. No. Nope. Before we start winner and loser of the week, I just had uh, one thought that I forgot to mention. Tara mentions Sting's big dick energy during her uh, candid submission. Yeah, I did. I just wanted to do a, a straw uh, a straw poll. You can uh, ping Extra Hot Great on Twitter, Extra Hot Podcast. How many people, when she said that, immediately pictured Sting in his Dune Space Speedo? <laughs> Let me know. All right. Uh, Sarah has our winner this week. Not sure I could follow that, but the winner is Bosch. Um, Bosch was renewed for season six before season five even premiered. That will happen, I believe, April of 2019. Uh, season five, that is. Um, normally, I would be like, this is a no one cares but Buncey. But the fact is, I think I have converted a few listeners <laughs> into watching this show. And it is a very good, solid B plus A minus procedural um, that if you like that kind of thing and with the holidays coming up, it is binge worthy and you might enjoy it. So yay, Bosch. I am pleased. I like that joke. And I am happy. Yeah, people like it. I have a sub winner before I get to my loser, which is high maintenance. HBO is finally moving it to Sunday nights. Woo. It's getting Ooh. moved up. I'm very Just happy. Just like a real boy. That's I fantastic. know. I'm very happy for high maintenance. One Me of too. the great underrated shows, but my loser <laughs> Brian Austin Green, Deadbeat Dad. No Obviously, everyone last week was hitting up our, again with this, Twitter <laughs> feed uh, to let us know about this. Um, Your yeah. brand is strong. <laughs> yeah, so apparently um, she has been, com she commented on an Instagram post uh, about him being Vanessa a Vanessa Marcel, this is. Yeah. Vanessa Marcel, yes, I'm sorry. His, his co-star... On 90210, um, and also the mother of one of his children. And she, you know, give this, it was like, really just jump went wild on a totally semi-related post from Lisa Ling's Instagram that she has a post coming up about custody cases. And then was like, speaking of custody cases, my entire life. Basically, <laughs> Brian Austin Green is a terrible father. He's, uh, he doesn't ever see his kids like i think has not been paying for them they've been fighting about this for eight plus years um he just doesn't give him access to his other children with megan fox like he's just a bad person and um even though he was a tv star a long time ago i'm still putting it here because he sucks and also he was on that terminator show with sarah connor so he's been on tv in the relatively recently last 10 years or so and it's not the kid's fault that his dumb parents named him Cassius with a with K. With a K. <laughs> speaking, about thing, speaking about things spelled with a K, do you know what time it is? Is game time? Game time? <laughs> sure. Welcome back to Game Time, everybody. This is the second Game Time of the season. Season standings are Value Guess 1, Tara 0, Sarah 0. Mm. Today we are playing Order Up from uh, Caroline from France, who earns herself okay. an extra Sweet. credit. Redeemable for an extra credit topic or Dave Forstening of her choosing. Now, this game was created with the help of at EHG Assist on Twitter. So many thanks to the crew there at EHG Assist for fleshing out this game. Everybody's got to eat, even TV characters. In today's game, we're going to give you a character, and you tell us what food they like the most or are most associated with. Uh -huh. Here's an example. The Cookie Monster from Sesame Street. 
Cookies. Answer, cookies. Sure. All right. That's why we burned that one on the example. Um, before we get into the game proper, Tara, can you please give us the steel mill situation and explain steel mills to our valued guest, Maggie? Yes, I can. Sarah Debunting has eight steel meals. Valued guests have one steel meal. I have zero steel meals. And the way steel meals work, Maggie, is if another player gets a question wrong, you can jump in and say steel meal before they uh, before Dave gives the correct answer and you can try to steal that point. That's all okay. there is to it. All right. All right. So in this game, order up, we have 51 questions because um, we're a little short on time. We're recording late today. There'll be no uh, equalizer challenge zones today. So with that, let's throw it to Picky to see who is going first. We will start with Tara. All right. We're going to go Tara, Sarah, Maggie. Are we ready to play? Order up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Let's do it. Here we go. Now, we're starting with breakfast foods are the answers to all these questions in round okay. one. Your character, Eleven, from the show Stranger Things. Eggo Waffles. Eggo Waffles, one point. Sarah D. Bunting. Jerry Seinfeld from Seinfeld. Oh, Jesus. Cereal? Cereal. <laughs> One All of right, many Maggie. things Jerry and I have in common. <laughs> uh, Maggie, Omar Little from The Wire. Can't eat guns, right? No, can't eat guns. <laughs> I will no. give you a hint. Okay. It's, it's extremely yeah. adjacent to one of the answers already given. Uh, pancakes? Close. <clears throat> it is Honey Nut Cheerios. Honey Nut Cheerios. Ah, about that. Okay. All right, Tara Ariano. Wilson Fisk from Daredevil. Oh, I don't know. Uh, breakfast foods. Scenery. Um, <laughs> locks. <laughs> uh, two Dave points for Sarah Debunting for the answer scenery. <laughs> uh, the answer, however, real answer, omelet. Omelet. Okay. All right. Uh, Sarah Bunting, Homer Simpson of The Simpsons. I believe he has been known on occasion to enjoy a donut. He does enjoy donuts. All right. Final question of round one. For Maggie, Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec, what breakfast food are we talking about? She likes waffles with a bunch of um, like cool, cool whip or whipped cream on top, like huge. All right, one point for yeah. waffles and two day points for uh, really drilling down. <laughs> Specificity. <into>. Yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on to round two. We're talking about snacks. Snacks. Tar Ariano, your first yeah. is Chucky Finster from Rugrats. Good luck. I know we never watched <laughs> Rugrats. Um, graham crackers. The answer is reptar bars. Reptar sure. bars, Tara. Sarah okay. D. Bunting, Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad. I don't remember Sour Patch Kids. That seems right. It it does. Uh, the answer even more right. Funyuns. Oh, <laughs> my people. See, I would I would have guessed meth. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> meth uh, he only dealt. I don't think he ever used his own supply of meth. No, just, he used his own supply. Did he? Oh, I yeah. think he just did weed, didn't he? It's, it's, a, a while. it's more of a meal than a snack anyway. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Fox. <laughs> he had a whole buffet of drugs. <laughs> true. Uh, Fox Mulder from the X-Files. What snack is he associated with? Uh, sweet potato pie. <laughs> <laughs> Sunflower seeds was his snack of choice. I didn't remember Tara. that. Tara. Uh, mm -hmm. Terry Jeffords. 
Uh, he likes yogurt. Who loves yogurt? Terry loves yogurt. <laughs> Good for a point. Sarah D. Bunting, Liz Lemon from 30 Rock. I got two answers I will accept. I'm not going to know either of them, so I'm just going to guess. Cracker Jack. Mm. All right. I would have uh, accepted Night Cheese or uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sabor de, de Soledad. The uh, <clears throat> terrible um, Mexican cheese Cheesies with bull semen. Yeah. That's right. Bull semen. Uh, Maggie. Kojak mm-hmm. from Kojak. I have never seen an episode of Kojak, so let's rock. Um, were his cigars edible? <laughs> Steel meal. There it is. Those were lollipops, no? Lollipops, correct, for a point. Uh, Tara. Brenda Johnson from The Closer. Um, She had like a drawer of chocolate bars, I think. She had a drawer full of ring dings, which are ho-hos oh, okay. by uh, TV name. All right. Fair Rules. enough. Sarah D. Bunting, Olivia Pope from Scandal. Is red wine a snack? No. Hmm. Steel meal. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I'm not going to know it. Go for it. Okay. Steel meal, Maggie. Uh, popcorn. Popcorn. Yeah, dude. Yes. Oh, yeah. Paired with red <laughs> wine often, but uh, popcorn yeah. is the snack part of it. All right, so All you're right, now out of steel meals. There was only the one. All right. So, Maggie is well out of steel meals, but yes. it, it is her turn it. for her question. For sure. Eric Cartman from South Park. Uh, Ho-Ho's? Mm. Oh, the answer we're looking for is Cheesy Poofs. Cheesy oh, Poofs. Oh, that's right. It. All right. Round three and our shortest round. Why? We're talking about vegetables. <laughs> one question for everybody Get here. Out of here, vegetables. Fair. Tara, Jacob from... Grace and Frankie. Um, Brussels sprouts. The answer there, yams. Oh, All right, this is a tough one for Sarah D. Bunting. Bugs Bunny. I believe he likes carrots. Sure does. And for Maggie, Picky. Dwight Schrute from The Office. Uh, beets. Beets. Nice. Bears. Beats, bells, etc. All right, round four: lunch and dinner. Lunch and dinner. All right, so some more substantial things for lunch and dinner. Starting with Tara, Michelangelo from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Pizza. Pizza. Or Sarah, Marty Globerman from Big Mouth. <laughs> Running gag. Yeah, she might not have watched enough to know that. Yeah. Matzo ball soup. I don't know. The answer is scallops. 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 Oh, <laughs> interesting choice. Another Parks and Rec clue for Maggie. Ron Swanson, Parks and Rec, a general food item. A general food item? Yeah, like a class of things. Like an aisle you'd um, find in the grocery store, perhaps. Meat. Or section. Meat. <laughs> Tar Ariano, SpongeBob SquarePants from the same. Um, there's some kind of some kind of burger at that burger place. Well, that, that is <laughs> correct, but we're looking for by name the Krabby Patty. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sarah D. Bunting, Eleanor from the Good Place. I mean, now all I can think of is chowder because of the fact. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Uh, 
I don't remember. Shit. Sorry, I don't know. Shrimp. 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 Oh, yeah, yes. Shrimp. Mike Emmertrout from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Ermintrout. 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 Sorry. And that's for Maggie. Sorry. Oh. Um... Mike from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. Featured in both. And I'll give you a clue. This yeah. is his stakeout food of choice. <laughs> hmm, that doesn't help me. Oh. Um, I'm going to go M&M's. This is lunch and dinner, remember, so it's not snacks. Oh, yeah. Uh, the answer was pimento cheese sandwich. Pimento cheese sandwich. <laughs> oh, right. Philadelphia. Everybody's last oh. dinner and a uh, lunch and dinner clue coming at you. Tara, another Parks and Rec clue. Ben Wyatt from Parks and Recreation. Calzones. Calzones. Lieutenant Columbo from Columbo, Sarah. Mm. Featured, not featured in the episode we watched, I'm pretty sure. Is it? I think so. God. Uh, uh, peanuts? Didn't he make a... Wasn't he making chili in the kitchen in the episode? No, we he was making an omelet. Remember, oh, we were omelet. criticizing right. his the egg technique. Yeah. Uh, chili was the answer. Wow. Well, she wasn't right. going to get it. Sorry sure. to mislead you. Uh, Jughead Jones and Terry from, respectively, uh, Riverdale and Bob's Burgers. Uh, Jughead, I always see drinking coffee at the diner. Jughead. This and- is lunch slash getting- dinner. Yeah. <clears throat> Jughead always- and I- Terry from Riverdale and Bob's Burgers. And I'm going to add, don't overthink it. Uh, burger hamburgers. Correct. And that takes us into our first score break, Tara. Well, it is a very, very, very close game. Sarah and I are tied with four points each. Maggie has five. All right. What? <clears throat> and now we are in to the next round, fruits and desserts. <laughs> Tara Ariano, Raylan yeah. Givens, he of Justified. What fruit does he like? Fruit and desserts. Dessert. Oh, I'm out of steel meals. Mm. Apple pie? Mm. All right, Maggie, uh, you can't steal milk, but you can, can't provide us with the answer. He seemed very confident. Oh, I just love when he throws his soft serve out the window so he gets a call. Like his ice cream. <laughs> his ice cream, yes. <laughs> nice. I remember Boyd wanted to open a Dairy Queen. It was like they were yeah. meant to be together and they just never yeah. could make it work. God bless you, Boyd. Michael Weston for Sarah D. Bunting. Michael Weston from Burn Notice. Hmm. Burn Notice. I feel like I should know this because he was eating them in all the promos, it Hmm. feels like. But now I just can't picture what he was eating. So I will say that he enjoyed bananas. Uh, Yogurt. Low yogurt. More problems. All right, Maggie. Dale Cooper, he of Twin Peaks. <laughs> um, there are a couple answers here that are, would be correct. Hit I me. mean, if we're getting, if we're going to split hairs. Yeah, let's but, do um, it. Let's split them. <laughs> um, he always liked cherry pie. Yeah. But there are definitely a couple pivotal scenes of donuts in the, um... yeah, thank you. We're going <laughs> to give you a bow. We're going to give you a point for cherry pie. And we're going to give value guests two day points for additional information. Nice. There. And you know what? The man loved his coffee. He did. Dean Winchester of Supernatural, Tara. Oh, does it? Um, 
I don't know, brownies. Dean Winchester from Supernatural just loved all types of pie. He was a pie fiend. Pie. Uh, Sarah D. Bunting. Picky comes through again. The Golden Girls of the Golden Girls. Oh. <laughs> Cheesecake. Cheesecake. Thanks, Right. All right, here's our last fruit and dessert question for Maggie. Sean Spencer from Psych. Cake. <laughs> the answer we were Is looking for pineapple? was pineapple. Correct. Pineapple. Okay. How did I know yeah. that? Lindsay doesn't right. put it on a pizza. It's fine. Guys, we've been eating a lot. Now it's time to wash it down with something. Welcome to the liquor round. The liquor round. Tara Ariano, JD from Scrubs. Apple teeny, please. Light on the teeny. <laughs> Sarah D. Bunting. Don Draper from Mad Men. Uh, you had a favorite drink. You just fucking drink anything. Um, uh, bourbon? I don't know. Why well, buzzed you? I have no fucking idea what an old-fashioned is, but that was it. It contains bourbon. But it has other things point? in it. Yes, it, yeah. it sure does. I'm going to give you Let's a, go to the judges. Half, half a Dave point. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty useless. All right, Maggie. Uh, yeah. Jay, Nick, and Jesse from Big Mouth all drank this liquor. I've never seen this show, so I'm just going to say vodka. Answer cotton candy brandy. Oh, <laughs> that sounds revolting. <laughs> wow. Five kids, four kids. Jessica Jones. She of Jessica Jones. Um, She just drinks whiskey, right? Just whiskey. Yes. Sarah D. Bunting. Norm Peterson from Cheers. Beer. And finally, Maggie. Frazier or Niles Crane of Frazier. And I don't uh, know. Gimlet? I'm Frazier. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They seem like Gimlet people to me. Mm. They really do. <laughs> uh, their most common drink, cherry. Correct. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess they drank sherry, but spiritually they drank Gimlet. Yep. <laughs> In their hearts. I'm giving you one yeah. spiritual point. No cash. <laughs> Guys, we are all tied up. All tied up. And here is our next round. Other beverages. All right. So basically soft drinks and non-alcoholic stuff. Tara, Laverne yeah. of Laverne and Shirley. Oh, didn't they drink milk and Coke? Oh. So close. Pepsi and milk. Ah! Okay. Close. Sarah Bunting. Jean-Luc Picard of Star Trek Next Generation. Um, Earl Grey, hot. Correct. <laughs> Maggie, Walter Bishop of Fringe. I'm, I'm going to say this could have also gone to dessert. Wow, you're giving me all the shows I didn't watch. Mm. Um, It could have gone into dessert, hot chocolate. Mm. I'll try to steel meal this. All Milkshakes? Right. Close. You did do milkshakes, but uh, we're looking for root beer floats. Oh, yeah. Hmm. All right, Tara. Radar O'Reilly from MASH. Oh, I know this. Uh, I don't know. Cream soda? <laughs> You're in the right uh, department. Uh, what do you think, Maggie, Maggie, what is it? It's purple knee-high. Yeah, grape knee-high. Nice. Wow. <laughs> two, two grape sodas. He had two grape sodas, and he's looking for trouble. <laughs> Love it. Sarah D. Bunting, Lorelai, and Rory Gilmore. Or as it is in this clue from Caroline, Lorelai at Rory Gilmore. <laughs> um, well, they drank a lot of coffee, you know. Drank a lot of coffee. Sure thing. All right, Maggie. B.A. Baracus. Bad attitude Baracus from the A-team. <laughs> 
Warm milk. Drugged milk, correct. Yeah, that's how you get them on a plane, people. Tara. Philip J. Fry from Futurama. Slurm. Oh, he loved his slurm. Sarah D. Bunting. The students of St. Bernadine from American Vandal Season 2. Lemonade. Lemonade, correct. <laughs> and Not finally for Maggie. In the yes. other beverage category, Lieutenant Worf from Star Trek Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. He seems like a Jolt Cola kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of does. Um, but uh, he drank prune juice because Klingons are constantly constipated because of all their anger issues. All right. <laughs> that reminds... Okay. Is that canon? <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, no, it's not. That, that That's Dave Cole fan fiction. <laughs> you should have just said yes. I would have bought it. <laughs> Maggie, did you have a thought on prune juice and Klingons? I did because it reminded me of that short-lived show, Alien Nation. Oh, yeah. on the... Uh... The movie where all the aliens got drunk on sour milk. Yep. <laughs> this is true, people. All right, scores here near the end. All right. Still very close. Now Maggie and I are tied with seven each, and Sarah D. Bunting has nine! All right. Well, I hate to say it this way. The game is already over because we're talking about off the menu, and everybody only has one question left. So oh. it sounds like Sarah's oh. clinched it, but there's a lot of Dave points here at play. Everybody's <laughs> going to get three Dave points to get the question okay. right. Okay. Or Tara. Wait, how did the rules work again? <laughs> Calvin it's like Ball. Calvin Ball. Currently at 17 to Q, but, you know, that may change. <laughs> right okay. now you're playing right. for uh, for the future. You're you're planting seeds in a garden you will never Dave see. Dave points come into play at some point in the future, which I decide, the value of which I also decide. You they also know. have not come up in about a year, so this is all very You never know when Dave points are going to come into play, so don't, 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 don't mock them. Don't uh, put them down. I'm not. Dave I points can become very important at any moment. Here we go. Off the menu. Tara, Gordon yep. Shumway from Elf. Cats. He loved cats. Sarah D. Bunting, Clem from Buffy. Oh, kittens. Kittens. And for Maggie, Hannibal Lecter from Hannibal. And I'm going to have you fill in the blank. Blank okay. pig. <laughs> oh, blank. I mean, he ate people, but I don't... <laughs> That's good enough. It's people, otherwise known as Long Pig. Long Pig. Okay. All right. That is the end of the game. Let's officially get the scores. Okay. We finished. Uh, Maggie and me tied with eight points each. Sarah D. Bunting is our victor with 10. All right. Those steel mills coming in handy for Sarah D. Bunting. Uh, Before we close this out, we're going to reuse the tiebreaker for an opportunity to win you or your group a steel meal for future use. The tiebreaker was a condiment question. A condiment question, all right? Oh, boy. First person to shout out the correct condiment wins the steel meal. Here we go. Live more, iZombie. Hot sauce. Hot sauce is Ooh, correct. Sarah! Sarah. Congratulations, Sarah. Sarah. My favorite part is not even the Sarah anymore. It's Tara repeating the Sarah. <laughs> and now I'm going to do it, and we're going to be here all day. All right, everybody, that is it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. We snorted up the fourth helping of Narcos before going around the dial with stops at Shut Up and Dribble, The Clinton Affair, and Patriot. We gave credit where it's overdue in this week's extra credit topic, and all credit Tara for her passing grade for her Larry Sanders canon monologue. We crowned winners and losers of the week, and Sarah was a winner of this week's Food Game Time. Remember... 
We're listening. I am David T. Cole, and on behalf of Tara Ariano. I don't do television anymore. Sarah D. Bunting. Put me down for a charm bracelet. And Maggie Sirota. <laughs> Everything's a Motley Crue video up until a certain point. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time, right here on Extra Not Great. I want you to forget about guarding the stupid Okay. You're being completely paranoid. Oh, am I? Am I really? Aha! Hello. All right, pal. Where'd you get your okay. for that tea? I nicked it when you let your guard down for that split second. And I'd do it again. <laughs> Goodbye.